Hello to you, I do hope you're well and a very warm welcome to this A-Level Religious Studies Revision Session. I'm Ben Wardle and coming up today we're talking about everything you need to know for the Knowledge of God topic on the Developments in Christian Thought Specification. So uh, sit down, get yourself a cup of tea, get your notepad out, let's get going, let's get cracking. It's a very interesting topic to talk about and what I find with this one with Knowledge of God, there are lots and lots and lots of those synoptic links which you can be bringing in. So when you're doing your revision you can get quite strategic and it can be quite effective because you're starting to make links across the philosophy of religion and your ideas about the teleological argument and the cosmological argument because um, natural knowledge of um, God's existence is a massive part of this topic and then you're making connections across the uh, theology unit to the person of Jesus Christ and what all of that means and then you're connecting again to Christian moral principles and how Christians make a moral decision. There are essentially, there are loads and loads and loads of links that you can be making here and that is great for getting a higher level answer. You know, remember in the exam you're doing free 40 minute questions, you, that's all that you are showing off for two years worth of work. It's ridiculous in my opinion but we're not going to have a rant about the exam system right now. What we are going to do is say make sure if you can and they're relevant and they work you're getting some nice synoptic links in there just showing off that you do actually know the whole specification you do know what you're talking about you have studied this for two years now and you've got rocked up looked at a flashcard with the with the word Karl Barth on it and go right let's go a star here I come I don't think so, honey. So let's, we'll talk about them as we go through, but let's just keep in mind that with this topic in particular, there's lots of nice links that you can bring in. So even if it is then on the exam, you're not too sure about it, you can think, well, actually, I could bring that in, or actually, I've gone over this, so I could link this in here, and that could work out quite effectively for me. So there's lots to talk about, lots to do. Essentially, I break this down into three sections. We look at the natural knowledge of God. We look at the revealed or the revelation-sourced knowledge of God, so natural and revelation, those two key schools of thought on how we have any knowledge of God or how a Christian will have knowledge of God. And then for the third component, we're looking at the relationship between the two. It's about the dialogue between the two or the dialogue between the two people. We'll be looking at Vincent Brummer and Karl Barth and their big ideas and how they thought knowledge of God could or could not, as the case may be, be attained. But we're going to start with things all to do with natural knowledge of God's existence. And this is the idea that it is natural and it is through nature and through our human nature that we can know God. So there's two key examples that I really like to use here. There is the uh, natural theology one, which is of course William Paley and his idea of the watchmaker, this idea that through observation of the natural world, we can come to an understanding, we can come to a, an argument for and an awareness of God's existence. So through that observation, through um, you know what he says, the inference we make is inevitable, the watch must have a maker. This idea that through observing the world, through looking at creation and you know, design qua regularity, design qua purpose, synoptic links there, we are looking at this world and we're concluding there must be a God. So how do we obtain knowledge of God? Through observing the natural world, through seeing the world as it is, through seeing what's out there, seeing that it must have been designed, seeing this evidence for creation in the natural world that we are observing. 
Okay, so that is your link to the design and teleological arguments. This idea that through nature we can see it. You could also link in ethics and natural law. The idea that, you know, we have these four tiers of law and that through the order in the universe, through the fact that things seem to all have a telos and have a purpose, that we can have knowledge of God. We are proving God exists. Now, we can have knowledge that God exists. You could then add in here, does that then give us any knowledge actually about God himself? Remember, when we were critiquing the design argument, we had the argument from John Stuart Mill, my favourite philosopher, um, and his argument that nature kills, that everything that nature does, men would be hung for, that, you know, actually, does the natural world reveal to us a good God? David Hume and his idea that actually, if we're looking at the natural world, we're not going to be led to belief in the Christian God, we're going to be led to belief in a trainee God, or we're going to be led to a polytheistic belief. To instantly critique that, you could say, well, if it's just through na nature, if it's just natural knowledge of God, then why doesn't everybody in the world believe in God? Or why doesn't everybody in the world come to the same conclusions based on their observance of nature and of the natural world? But certainly we've got in there this idea, and you can, of course, link in um, Thomas Aquinas and his five ways, the five ways of going to try and remember them now no i'm not because i've actually written them down of motion causation contingency perfection and design they are your five golden nuggets from aquinas there make sure you link them in and this whole idea from him that um from that observation of the natural world you know through looking at the um the arrow and the archer, this idea everything seems to have a cause and effect, we can then come to conclusions, we can have knowledge of God's existence, but then I want to add on and keep adding on for this topic, knowledge of God's existence, can we know anything about God? What kind of knowledge are we actually attaining? So that is the first part of the natural theology argument or the natural knowledge of God's existence argument. Okay, that we can from observation know something of God. William Paley, Thomas Aquinas. Okay, the key hitter here, this is the really key person you need to get in there. If you don't get him in there, you might as well get out of the exam hall or you might as well say, excuse me, can I get a geography paper? Because do you know what? You might as well be doing it if you've not included this man. And that man is John Calvin. Okay, John Calvin, I'm going to give you a little introduction to him. I've written some notes on him in my little notepad because I love him. Honestly, I'm a big fan. Um, not necessarily of what he says, but of his ideas. I love to think about them. I think we should be reflecting on them. Um, and he's all the way back in 1509. And he was a Protestant um, re Reformation advocate, if you like. So he was originally a Catholic. And then he sort of had this crisis of faith, if you like. And he abandoned his Catholicism um, because he wasn't happy with how the church was being run and all of this. Um, and he called for reform of the church and the church institution of the Catholic Church. Um, and he's probably most famous for writing Institutes of the Christian Religion. This is a really big text. If you want a bit of summer reading after your exams, there it is. All right. Um, and uh, he, in his 1550 edition of this, he said, he wrote, all people recognise there is a God and that he is their creator. So he's arguing that everyone has religious belief. He was saying, you know, even if you look at these tribes in the forest, in the middle of nowhere, they have some kind of connection to the divine. They have some kind of spiritual element to what they're doing. They have some kind of, you know, sense of something greater than them. He's saying everybody has this. Every single area of society, corner of life has this connection with something greater than them. So he's saying it's just part of us. It's 
within us this innate sense of the divine. I mean, he says, and he writes, the sense of divinity is inscribed in the hearts of all people. And this brings us to his key idea, the sensus divinitatis. All right. This is the idea that we all have within us a sense of God. He calls it the seed of religion, the sensus divinitatis. Make sure you can, yeah, I can't say it because of all the S sounds, but make sure you can spell it. Make sure you remember it. This idea that within each human being, so it is natural to us, it's part of our human nature. Remember those key terms that it's part of our human nature to have this sense of the divine within us. And that enables us, that gives us the capacity to understand, to have knowledge, to have awareness of God and the divine. But his key argument here, please make sure you know it, that within us all there is the seed of religion, the sensus divinitatis, this sign, this signal, this understanding and awareness, this capacity to know the divine, which is so much greater than us as human beings. Um, now, what he breaks this down to is three components, the conscience, aesthetics, and intellect. Okay, so it's through the conscience, that voice inside us, that we can have innate evidence that God exists and that God is communicating with us, that we have an openness to receiving his goodness. A theme we're going to get onto very shortly is the ideas about grace. The idea that grace is the unconditional goodness of God given to mankind, all the good that God does unconditionally for us. Um, and this idea that you are open to um, God and God's voice through the conscience and through knowing God as your creator. We then have aesthetics. The Roman Catholic Church is very big on this one. Um, and the fact that we can appreciate aesthetics. So we can be like, oh, that's pretty. That's nice. You know, oh, that's colourful. That's a beautiful landscape. Our appreciation of aesthetics, the Catholic Church believes, is another example of the sensus divinitatis. We are able to appreciate aesthetics in order to appreciate God. So that is part of our ability to, um, and our capacity to know, to understand, and to have an awareness of God. So aesthetics and conscience, and then finally our intellect. Why have we got an intellect? There's millions of answers you could give. There's millions of people I don't think have an intellect. But what we can say is um, that it's part of the sensitive Divinitatis argument, the intellect is integral to our ability and our capacity to understand God. This idea, it's not just put to you on a plate. It's not just there on a plate for you and you're just like, right, there we are. It's all written up. Although Revelation theology might suggest that when we're talking about the Bible and all of that. But here at this point, the idea of the sensitive Divinitatis, we have an innate capacity to understand God through the conscience, through the aesthetics and through the intellect. The idea of the intellect is our tool, our mechanism, our resource in order to develop, build, cultivate our awareness and our knowledge of God. And John Cavan, I love this quote. This was I put this on my wall during my revision. This was a passionate quote of mine that I would love to use. I'd use it in any essay I could. He said, there is within the human mind, and indeed by natural instinct, an awareness of divinity. He says, this we take to be beyond controversy. God himself has implanted in all man a certain understanding of his divine majesty. So a really interesting quote for us to think about, to reflect on that. This idea that within each of us, there is this understanding of God, this uh, capacity, this ability to have an awareness. And it is natural. Remember, it is part of our human nature. Let's have a quick cheeky evaluation of all this then, shall we? All of this um, natural knowledge of God's existence. So you can argue it is a normal way to use 
um, human intellect and reasoning. We are used to this method that through observation, through that empirical inquiry, we are, it is normal, we are, you know, programmed to then interpret that information and to make judgments, to make conclusions, to make assessments about the nature of the world and the universe from it. We say that follows normal patterns. Of course, you could then say, but why doesn't everybody come to the same conclusion? Why, as David Hume says, does it lead us to think of a amateur god, a trainee god, to many gods? Why does John Stuart Mill say, you know, we look at nature, nature kills. It cannot suggest that a good god exists. And there is a long tradition of using reason to show that God exists. If you look at natural law, it's all about right reason in accordance with nature. And that has been a big thing for over 2000 years. And um, so that's, you know, since the beginning of the Christian religion, this has been a big thing that people have used. The ancient Greeks used it as well. This idea of using reason to interpret nature, to make conclusions about the, the universe and about human life and what we should be doing. You could say, well, it's reasonable to believe that God would want to communicate with his creation through what he has made. This idea of God being depicted as the artist. You must be able to remember all the stuff we did about analogy. This is great to get in here. You know, you must be able to say something about the creator from observation of the creation. See, we're getting a synoptic link in here to language games and uh, religious language now, because you must be able to say something about the creator. We have knowledge of the creator of God from observation of the creation of the finished product. Um, and we could say so many people around the world are religious, you know, surely there must be something in what they're seeing or there must be something within them that leads them to that belief. You know, on the sensitive inatatus in particular, we can say, you know, there seems to be this impulse within human beings towards religious belief. Now, um, there's lots of criticisms we can bring in here of, say, Feuerbach, and he says, theology is anthropology. You know, we, we are thought of, it might be an insecurity we have, it might be a need for um, a belonging, it might be our awe and feeling overwhelmed at the universe. That doesn't necessarily mean it's from God. It could just mean that we are, you know, genuinely overwhelmed by how incredible the world is and we want to make sense of that. You know, can we actually link it directly to God or can we just link it to our sort of our feeling of being overwhelmed at our smallness? And this vast and massive universe in which we live. And um, but you could also say those feelings of awe and wonder must come from somewhere, and so it is fair and it is right to say they have come from God. If we move it along and we talk about what could be wrong then with the natural theology approach, we could say the gap is too great to accept the sensus divinitatis. When we talk about Karl Barth and he says God was radically other and we couldn't know God, it's this idea that we are corrupted by the fall. It is only through revelation that we can know God. This idea that there is within us the capacity to know God, he would dismiss as incorrect and wrong because we are fallen. Because we are tainted by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we cannot independently, autonomously use our reason and rationalism to know God because of the corruption that's brought about because of the fall. We could say it's very limited and it is very subjective because when you are talking to different people, they are going to make different conclusions. 
all those critiques that we make of the teleological argument when we are talking about William Paley and Thomas Aquinas in the um, design argument topic, we can bring them in here. We can talk about the fact that everybody makes different observations and different conclusions. If there's one sense of divinitatis, why are there so many different ideas of God and so many different kinds of religious belief and expression? There is no one universal understanding of God. There are lots of atheists. Where's the sense of divinitatis gone? In Richard Dawkins. It's disappeared. It's run away. Where is it gone? We need to track it down. Um, and again, we can say there are other explanations for that sense of divinitatis and that feeling of being overwhelmed and of awe and wonder and different explanations for the beauty and the, the aesthetics in the universe other than God. So are we making too great a leap to connect it to being God? Right. We've tackled that, we've had fun with that. What we're going to do now is move on to Revelation theology. And Revelation theology is very straightforward to work through and to understand. It's this idea that um, we know God through faith and grace alone. So the idea that because of the fall, and the fall is a very significant act, obviously, in Christian history, especially when it comes to the knowledge of God's topic, um, Excuse me, my voice is going, I need a bit of green tea, I think. I'm getting a bit croaky. We can't have that, can we? Bloody hell. Excuse my language. This is what it does to me, dear. Oh, it's not good, is it? And the sun's gone in now. So you're now going to be able to see how dodgy my eyebrows are today. Lovely. Let's go. <laughs> okay, so Revelation theology, it's this idea about faith and grace. So we can know God not through the nature and through our use of reasoning because that is all corrupted. This idea of the fall tainting our knowledge, tainting our ability to reason, to use our intellect and to think. Um, and this idea, sorry, there was a quote that suddenly came to my head and I was like, I need to use that. But now I'm reading this sheet and I'm like, where's it gone? <laughs> Did I even write it down? Um, uh... No, do you know what? It's not on there. Great. Or is it on that side? Oh, no, there's no quotes on that side. Lovely. It's all going well. Well, let's get back on track. So faith and grace are the key tools that we have to use because they come from God. They are God's gift to us. It's this idea that we are fallen, that we are limited, we are corrupted, we are incapable and that we require God's grace. Remember that idea of God's unconditional giving of goodness to us because we are incapable ourselves. Um, and we see the revelation very key in the Bible, as in the Bible is the revelation. So it is through the Bible, which can be understood as a propositional revelation, uh, we can then have any knowledge at all. We don't, it's literally like the Bible is handing to us on a plate the knowledge that we need because we are incapable because of the fall, because of the corruption in the Garden of Eden, because of Adam, the tainting of our abilities to think and our, our goodness. Um, that we have to have some kind of intervention. We have to have some kind of revelation, and that is through the Bible. And um, the Bible is understood by this school of thought as a propositional revelation in that um, it is entirely propositional in acknowledging the Bible as the word of God. So we're understanding the Bible as literally the word of God, which he's got, and he's gone, here you go, here it is, 
here are the answers. I'm going to reveal them to you. Lots and lots and lots of examples of revelation that we can find throughout Christian history. We can take it back even further to the Old Testament and the Judaic school of thought and Judaism and the Old Testament Ten Commandments. And this idea that they were revealed to Moses. There are 613 other commandments in the Old Testament, but those 10 commandments are a very good example of how God is said to literally reveal things. Say on a, you know, on a big slate of stone. You know, that revelation theme, very key there. Because we cannot figure it out for ourselves, we have to have the revelation. We have to have the divine intervention reaching down to us, reaching out to us. So we see it in the Bible as a text itself being treated as the literal word of God, or in the idea that God reveals information to certain key figures, such as the biblical prophets who then write the books. And then, of course, in the Christian tradition, the key, key, key act of revelation, and what is seen as the key act of grace, by God is the coming of Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay, it's this idea, and it's very prevalent in Catholicism to this day, that revelation, God's program of revelation to us, if you like, of his agenda, um, of himself, of his knowledge, giving his knowledge to us, it is completed like a little cherry on top of the cake by the coming of Christ, by the Christ event. So it is in Jesus Christ coming um, as understood as the incarnation of God. And it is in that act, in that event, that the revelation is complete because he finally reveals his, you know, his New Testament, his um, manifesto, if you like, for how we should live and what we need to do to secure um, life. And we can link this very nicely to the fall. Um, and this goes very nicely with ideas about original sin in the very first part of the developments in Christian thought topic, because it um, talks about... The idea that the cross is the source of redemption for human beings. So we have the fall in the Garden of Eden and it is in Jesus' resurrection in the cross that we have a reconnection and we have a redemption and a sort of a building of the bridges. So this idea that it is through the coming of Christ, Jesus coming, uh, teaching, um, showing people the sacraments of the Last Supper, for example, in those acts, he is restoring some kind of relationship, allowing us some kind of knowledge, insight and understanding between God and his creation. So the creation can once again have a knowledge of the creator in the completion of the Christ event. The church then believes that in the world today, as you can see, it's a very Catholic um, idea. In the world today, it is the church, which is a gift from God. So the church, it's quite big headed this, isn't it? The church is like we are the gift of God to humanity. The church sees itself as God's gift to humanity. Built, remember, as Jesus says in the Bible, um, Peter, you are the rock on which I will build my church. Um, and it's this idea that the church becomes the new voice of God, the new source of revelation for the world today. So still, we are still a little bit corrupted. We still can't quite think for ourselves because of all of what happened with the fall. But what we can do is um, turn to the church, which now provides the revelation, which will interpret the Bible, for example, which will you know, believe the Pope is speaking for God and for um, the divine. And that is the gift of God to the world today as a source of revelation, the church. So you can see why the church thinks it's quite important and it thinks it's got all the right answers because it does genuinely believe that they have come from straight up there. They've got our hotline to God and he's given the Pope a call and he's told him exactly what he needs to know. So what can we say about um, revelation? 
theology. Um, it, it's it's uh, rooted in this idea of the fall, which is a key, key Christian doctrine of original sin, which we, of course, trace back to Augustine. That's very important. It emphasizes the importance of faith which is, I think, very important in terms of distinguishing between religion and science. You know, if we start overlapping the two, I think a lot of religious truths will be undermined because, you know, the idea of walking on water, the idea of the incarnation, the idea of the Trinity, these ideas do not, quite frankly, stand up to the test of science. So if you remove knowledge in a religious way from knowledge of science and say, well, it's about faith, and revelation and grace instead you diffuse that situation you sort of reclaim the power because and we can link to language games here you were saying the religious knowledge is a very different kind of knowledge to any kind of scientific empirical knowledge so by dismissing the empiricism yes that could be a big turn-off and it could be like well then it's got no authority and there's no empirically verifiable propositions you can make for example you are at the same time safeguarding religion and religious truths by saying they are a different kind of knowledge namely they are based on faith and revelation and grace not on empiricism um you know testing and observation and you could say you know the concept of grace reminds us of the need to be humble which is a very key idea in the christian faith and it recognizes the important role of jesus again as i said synoptic links we can be linking this in very nicely to the ideas about uh, jesus christ in the uh, christian thought topic on whether jesus was the son of god whether he was a liberator whether he was um a key political leader we have to, for Revelation theology, believe he is the son of God and we have to believe in his important role. For Christians, Jesus is, you know, God. He is part of the Trinity. He is this very important figure. So in terms of that connection that we can make there, it's very interesting that Revelation theology reinforces the important and unique role of Jesus Christ, which goes to the very core of Christian belief and teaching. It also safeguards and recognises the unique role of the Bible and the idea that you can't just discard the Bible and say, oh, never mind, I'll use my own reason. No, you won't, honey, because you can't. You've got to get your Bible out and use the Bible if you want to have any knowledge at all. So it sort of safeguards these very um, traditional classic ideas about um, the Christian faith, about the Bible and about Jesus and about how we can know anything about God. Um, but what can we say? We could say, well, it suggests that there is favoritism on the part of God because it assumes that Christianity is the only answer, that revelation through Jesus Christ alone, that revelation through the Old Testament and the New Testament alone. What about other religious figures? What about other religious denominations who don't use these holy books, but who are looking at the world around them, appreciating its goodness and believing in God? If we say you can only know God through this specific text or this specific person we are very limiting we are becoming very exclusivist in our approach another synoptic link and um, we could say it depends on accepting beliefs about jesus in the bible so they're quite linked there aren't they and so what we can say with that and again it's a very uniquely christian position you know so if we're talking about you know religious pluralism how inclusive this is this is very very exclusivist um, you know, and this is very, very narrow minded in terms of focusing solely on Christianity as the source of truth um, and not as a truth among truths, but as the only way. 
Um, now we could say, well, the fall is not necessarily literally true. You know, this whole idea about the fall, meaning we are tainted so we can only find anything out through revelation. You could say, well, that's not, you know, the, the right way to interpret this. You know, this is Augustine's quite outdated doctrine as, you know, we see theologians discussing it today so actually is it accurate to be still talking in these terms about us all being fallen and being born fallen what about the census divinitatis we can get that in there you know use the census divinitatis to say we do have a knowledge of the divine we do have the capabilities and the capacity to know god so let's use them um and again this idea that it assumes christianity is the only correct answer it is the only correct revelation you know what does this mean for the engagement of christianity with the wider world it's very interesting um um john calvin and the protestant movement you know was very much about opening it up and getting rid of these very strict rigid narrow-minded doctrines so these ideas about revelation you could see them as quite outdated or as quite well definitely as very conservative ideas which is why the catholic church loves so much no, I'm really joking. Um, so very, very interesting to discuss. What I want to move on to discuss now is um, the fall, actually, in a little bit more detail, because there is a key debate that goes on between Vincent Brunner and uh, Karl Barth, which raises some important questions about whether the fall completely removed all natural human knowledge of God. So uh, we're going to take a look at these two. Uh, it's not Vincent Brunner, sorry. I've just it's uh, Emil Brunner. All right, Vincent Brunner, Emil Brunner. Don't get them mixed up. So we're going to be talking about Emil Brunner and Karl Barth, um, who both come from the Calvinist Reformed tradition. I'm going to talk about what they've got to say. So is it possible to know God through natural theology? One of them, yes, Emil Brunner. Um, the other, no. So let's get down to it. And what I will do is I will share with you um, from the book here what both of them say so far. And I'll give you my little commentary. You know how it is. Just to add a bit of something. Uh, so Brunner says, it is possible for us to know God through natural theology, the conscience and the sensus divinitatis. Remember the three components of it, of conscience, aesthetics and intellect. He says, humans recognise the point of contact between God and themselves and then become aware of their own sinfulness. Okay. Natural theology cannot save people, though, he says. However, it can create a discussion that points towards the existence of God. He says natural theology can help us to be aware that there is a God, but there is a limit to what we can know. So both of them are very sceptical and critical of natural theology, but Brunner is a little bit more open to it. Okay, and he says, the fall damaged people on some levels, but could not affect the spiritual level, which means there is still a way we can connect with God. Barth, on the other hand, and his key quote is that God is radically other. And Barth says, as God is so radically other that we cannot use reason to know God. He says it's like pouring the Niagara Falls into a milk jug, a.k.a. You can't do it. He says human language came about to describe human things. So we can never fully describe God or the human relationship to him. So that he, this idea from Wittgenstein, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. We are so limited because all that we've ever experienced is human things and human concepts. Like we call this paper. You know, we name this ahead. How can we then apply our human knowledge to God? 
and to the divine because he's so um metaphysical he's so transcendent from what our daily experiences and the way in which we use language in our daily lives he also says human reason cannot be fully trusted we must not put ourselves in a position where we put reason um above god you know you're essentially then thinking you are god we could say you know only he should have that power and that might in his knowledge um bath says the bible contains god's revelation but it is only god's word because god allows revelation to occur through it and he says human nature was completely corrupted by the fall so only through revelation can god interact with humanity so both of them seeing how limited natural theology is because of the event of the fall but brunner saying that we, we can retain something and Bath saying we cannot retain anything. Get gone, get out, it's not gonna happen. It's game over, the show is over. So it's quite a subtle point there um, to do with the fall. One of them saying it's had an effect, but not wiped it out. And then Bath saying God is radically other. You know, we cannot know anything ourselves because of the consequences of the fall that has happened there. Um now there's some nice links that I do want to bring in. Um for example, support for the Centus Divinitatis, uh, which is, of course, John Calvin's idea, comes from Karl Rahner. And Karl Rahner talks about an existential openness to grace. And this is all to do with his inclusivist approach to religious pluralism. And he says, um, we all have within us an existential openness to grace and to God. And he uses this to argue for his point that people can be anonymous Christians. You can be a Christian without knowing it. But what he argues is that people have this existential openness to grace. Within us, we have this openness, this capacity to know God, to understand God, to connect with the divine and to have that kind of knowledge. And we can contrast that, Rana, Karl Rana, can be contrasted with Karl Barth. And Karl Barth over here says that God is radically other. And he's an exclusivist. The gospel sets a question mark against all other truths. Uh, he rejects natural theology and says it is only through revelation you can know God. Whereas Karl Rana, on the other hand, it's like the battle of the... Uh, Carl's says that you have this existential openness to grace. Um, so very, very interesting points there. A nice point that could be used to support Karl Barth is from John Scottus Eregina, who says God is beyond all meaning and intelligence. So again, we could bring this back to an argument with the via negativa, the via positiva. How do we know God? How do we use human language? How do we use human intellect? How do we use our human capabilities and experiences to to know something or to say something about God and the divine. So some very, very interesting points. I wanted to conclude by going through just a couple of key quotes that I think it is essential you know for the knowledge of God topic, okay? And the first one is from John Calvin, who says, knowledge of God is revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts. Get that printed, get that on a poster, all right? Knowledge of God is revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts. Um, Feuerbach says theology is anthropology. So, you know, when we are believing there's a sense of divinitatis, that we're not actually just talking about some kind of human feeling, and then we're saying it's come from God, but really it's just our human psychology and a, a psychiatric thing. Um, Rudolf Otto says the numinous is wholly other. So again, how can we connect with the divine or have knowledge of the divine um, or the divine's existence when it is wholly other? It's beyond our human reason and capabilities. Cicero said there will be one law eternal. Um, this idea that in the natural law that we have, we could know God, that natural theology approach. 
um, Aquinas, and of course his five ways of motion, causation, contingency, perfection and design. Ninian smart religious experience has its own kind of logic. So again, this idea that religion and religious experiences transcend our everyday experience. So it's more about the revelation than the natural theology because it takes on this very different kind of knowledge and approach and ability to understand and comprehend. Uh, Charles Stroth said that one ape's hallucination is another ape's religious experience. The idea here being, again, that we are mistaking as some kind of divine presence or a sense of divinitatis for something that is very psychological in origin, that has psychological roots and foundations. We are thinking, oh, it's about the divine, when really it could be just about our human needs and our human feeling of awe and wonder at the universe. It doesn't necessarily mean there is a God behind it. William James and his pint theory of passivity, ineffability, noetic quality and transience, and these ideas about how we have religious experiences, how could they provide us with a knowledge of God. Um, and William Paley I've got here, and his idea about the inference being inevitable, the watcher must have a maker, that through that natural theology, through that observation, you can know something and you can say something. So that is our introduction to the developments in Christian thought, knowledge of God topic. Thank you very much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. With the sunlight going up and down, you know, you've been getting all different lighting today. It's like a disco day. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram, BenWardle underscore. Join me on TikTok, uh, BenWardle underscore, and on Twitter. Bear model underscore surprise surprise remember to like comment subscribe and share and i will see you very very soon thanks for watching have the best day take care bye bye